Welcome to For the Record, behind-the-scenes insider podcast with Colin McCall, where we take a forward-facing look at your environmental requirements and help you make your EHS program an indispensable and strategic part of your company's growth. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For the Record email newsletter. And now, here's your host, Colin McCall. All right, everybody, welcome to episode 15 of the podcast. Today, I'm joined by Eric Swisher, a technical director with all four and a technical expert for our continuous monitoring systems tech team. Eric is among the most well-versed national experts in continuous monitoring systems and SEMS programs for industrial facilities. He's helped facilities and stakeholder groups navigate just about every SEMS issue you can think of, compliance, reporting, downtime, data validation, calibration. I know I'm missing categories. He's one of the best. Long story short is you've got a great resource on this podcast to talk all things CMS. Eric is a Lockhaven alum, longtime Westchester, Pennsylvania resident. We've had a lot of travels together. And we've had a good run. And uh, before Eric can say that I order Coors Light, no matter how fine the establishment we're at is, I'm going to say that first so he can't. But it's been great. The travels with Eric and going around with him have been great. Eric, anything else in the way of introduction that you want listeners to hear? No, I think you summed it up quite well, especially with the Coors Light comment. <laughs> and uh, I still I still think that we are, we are having a good run. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not had a good run. I still think we're... We're having one as we as we continue. To, uh, that's that's true. That's true. This isn't the eulogy for our uh, our time right. together. One thing I would add, just to kind of set the basis from what our CMS tech team has been doing over the last you know just decade or so plus, is that uh, we're really you know bridging that gap between the regulatory stuff and the why we do things and the hows. So how the things get done. And the hows get done at the instrumentation and the technician level. And really bridging those gaps and pulling those people together and connecting those dots is kind of where we get into those areas and those, those weeds and, and are able to, uh, you know, provide that insight, provide that value. And also from our perspective, really learn because you can, you can look at regulations all you want. But until a technician says we just can't do it that way, what is the flexibility inside that regulation? That's kind of where we find uh, get excited about and really allow us to uh, you know to learn and to assist uh, and support folks in their endeavor to to demonstrate compliance. Now, there's a space there to fill, and there's not that many folks out there that can fill that space. And I do want to talk about that in a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about the stakeholders in this process. And, and who they are actually here near the beginning. But before we get into that, I want to start at the very beginning, just for our listeners who may not be as familiar with the topic. When we say CMS, what are we referring to for the purposes of this conversation that we're going to cover? If CMS are continuous monitoring systems, you know, CMS, they're used in they're used to demonstrate compliance with emission limits or sometimes operational limits. And you, what you're doing is you're measuring the emissions directly or the operational uh, information from processes or control devices, and you're doing them continuously, continuously as defined by the rule. CMS includes kind of a, a larger or a subset of, of uh, instrumentation like continuous emission monitoring systems where we're monitoring the emissions of, of a source or a unit. Continuous opacity, in which we are measuring opacity continuously. 
our uh, parameter system. So we're monitoring things like delta P or temperatures, things that aren't directly related to emission standards, but they're an indication of process or an indication of, of uh, you know, control device that were established during a performance test and then correlated to, hey, here's where everything's working good. And we're going to track these operating parameters uh, moving forward to indicate our compliance status. Okay, so file that, folks, for in terms of framing what we're going to be discussing in general. Now I do want to go to the stakeholders in this process. On this podcast, we always talk about being forward-looking, practical advice, tying stakeholders together and making sure we get people interacting the way that they need to. In the process of CMS data collection all the way to regulatory reviews and reporting, who are the stakeholders that normally fit into that process? And then maybe you could expand a little bit on that space that we fill like you were before. Yeah. So, you know, the stakeholders, and we, we kind of refer to in a lot of our training uh, that we do as kind of the village. You know, it really does take a village to take CMS data and use it for compliance purposes. Uh, and that village internally is the environmental entity, of course, you know, because they're kind of the, the owner of the data. They're the owner and the, the people that are describing the whys. Here's why we are doing what we are doing. The instrumentation folks, the E&I technicians, are actually performing the hows. Once the whys are established, the hows are being you know, executed by the instrumentation, very black and white. Operations are also a part of a, you know, a stakeholder, you know, and from operation eyes, they just they really want to know what well, give me my data, give me my data in a manner in which I know how to operate my unit and I'll try to operate this thing in compliance. And then management. Management is that role and that responsibility. This is the person that kind of has ownership over everything, but also the person who is attesting to the truth, the accuracy and the completeness with we you know with a reasonable inquiry to the CMS data. Uh, so they, they kind of make up the internal. And then you got consultants and other people that help support those resources inside of those. Externally, you have stakeholders as well. You've got the, the state or local and federal agencies that are involved. Uh, you've got trade groups. You've got legal counsel. Sometimes when you're going through elements of even deciding with the compliance demonstration, it's good to, to, to go to inside counsel, internal counsel, or maybe even external counsel, depending on the nature of your organization and how you want to do it. And then you can also consider the NGOs, the non-governmental organizations as a stakeholder in this whole thing as well, because they are contributing to you know, the development and the oversight of these roles. And you know, a lot of times involved in the, the scrutiny uh, you know, on the data on, on the back end as it becomes uh, you know, available for them to review. So you've got a lot of layers to CMS, which is part of what makes it interesting. You have a IT world in there. You've got an operational sphere in there. You've got regulatory and electronic reporting sphere. You've, you've got these different stakeholders that cover different parts of the process. Where have you typically done your work in that the most often? What, what dots among those stakeholders have you helped to connect in the past? Yeah. So, you know, typically, you know, we would always, and, and, and initially, I think when we first got into this game, it was always driven through the environmental. Hey, we got a rule we got to comply with. How do we do it? Right. Then we started to see that while well, it was great to define it from an environmental, but the integration was lacking. How do we take what we've defined and integrate it in a manner in which it contributes to operations? 
in a manner in which instrumentation can actually understand what they are doing and why they are doing it to support the CMS, uh, you know, compliance demonstration. What happened was, is going through that, we started to say, oh, we need more tools, right? We need more tools, data acquisition systems, or we need more, you know, uh, functionality around our compliance demonstration because it's not very robust. It's not state of the art. It's not even, you know, we're still doing things on uh, strip charts and three and a quarter inch floppy disks, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's migrated into a lot more bells and whistles out there. As soon as we get to that point, now we get to a place that I never thought I'd be dealing with. And that's with IT is, mm-hmm. you know, we start with IT a lot of times because it feels good for IT to say no about everything. Right. Can we do it? No. Can I get data from point A to point B? No. You know, so there's a lot of things that you have to consider, a lot of things that you have to be able to explain, because once you get over certain of those hurdles, IT starts say, oh, wait a minute, if you're doing it this way and you're implementing these solutions, we can see a way we can support that. And you can start to see that it becomes a very, you know, orchestrated management project. And a lot of the effort that we're doing uh, with our clients, I would say is probably 20 to 80% technical, 20% project management, you know, just organizing and, and uh, getting all these people and these, these connect these dots to get to where we all want to be from a goal perspective. Eric, I often hear you talk about good data and bad data. So we've talked to stakeholders a little bit about CMS. Now I want to get into the meat of this and the things to consider as part of the CMS program. Talk a little bit at the end about how this tends to elevate, maybe above and beyond some of the other compliance obligations. But before we get there, I hear you talk about good data, bad data as sort of the root of CMS compliance. One of the first decisions points you have to make, good data, bad data. What do you mean by that? You know, and what's an example or two of that? So if you look at, you know, compliance demonstrations, first, we got to look at when am I subject to monitoring? First, you're subject to monitoring when the unit is operating. That could be different depending on the type of source you're monitoring. So combustion could be a parameter. Stack flow could be a parameter. The combustion of hazardous waste could be a parameter. Those type of things define when you're subject to monitoring. So now when you're subject to monitoring, I have good data and I have bad data. That's it. There is no in-between. It's either good or it's bad. So what is good? Good is quality assured, meaning that I've done the quality assurance activities successfully in order to validate the quality of that data. It's also representative operations because you have the second tier. I could pass my quality assurance test, but still have something going on in the monitoring system where it's not representative operations. So there's an obligation of, is this data really truly what's happening coming out, you know, my stack per se. Once it's good, now I can move on and I can have it, uh, you know, be used for a compliance demonstration. Bad data cannot be used for compliance demonstrations. So bad data is either not quality assured or not representative operations. It can't be used by role. A lot of times what we see is we see people, and it's a fundamental shift, is I only worry about my CMS data when I have an exceedance. If I have an exceedance or a deviation, I go back and determine that some of that data I'm using to determining my exceedance or deviation is invalid. So then I'll go ahead and validate that. Well, that is not the way it works. You just can't wait until you, the, the trigger is not if I'm in or out of compliance. The trigger is good or bad data. 
because now data is not being used only as compliance. Data is being used to formulate you know, emission standards in the future. So emission standards in the future can't be based on bad data. So if I'm in compliance but yet reporting zero all the time, I'm still in compliance, but now zeros may be used for setting the emission standard of a future limit you know, as they go back and revise the rules. So good data is the only data we can use for compliance demonstration. Bad data gets thrown out in the trash and could be considered CMS downtime uh, depending on, um, you know, how much uh, of that bad data I have. So we have good data as the starting point. Then we've got to take that good data. And one of the challenging aspects of SEMS and CMS is there's so many different wrinkles to these rules, different averaging times, different ways you quantify your emission rate that you're then comparing against the limit. And that's where we get into data validation with that good data that we have. So tell me about data validation. What is it? What goes into it? What are the considerations? All right. So data validation is where we spend the most of our lives, right, is in this validation world. And it's how much and what kind. How much data and what kind of data? Well, let's get to easy stuff. We know what kind. Good. That's clear. Has to be good. So let's just push that to the side. So how much good data do I need? How much good data do I need to build a valid hour? Right. Now, fortunately, from a valid hour perspective, if we just use an example for, you know, part 60 for SEMS for a full operating hour and, uh, you know, it's, it's a normal full operating hour, nothing else going on. I need to have one reading in each quadrant of the hour for a total of four. Right. So that sets the minimum amount of data I need to validate an hour. So where I'm monitoring continuously once every 15 minutes in the SEMS world, I need, I need one reading in each, each quadrant of the hour. Now I can validate that hour and a full operating hour, normal fuel, full operating hour, and go from there. There's a lot of nuances when if I'm doing calibrations, preventative maintenance, all that kind of stuff. But simplicity, you know, I'm looking at it from that aspect of here's where it's defined and here's the building blocks to determine how much of that data I need. How often – This is a loaded question, I know, because we can't put a percentage to it. But one of the tricky parts about this, and I know from our work together, is that sometimes the way that you validate that data and what you need to say to build the emission rate that we're then comparing to the limit, sometimes that's spelled out very clearly in the regulation, like you just mentioned, for Part 60 and the one reading in every each quadrant of the hour to make it valid, but then sometimes it's not. So how, how do facilities navigate that? What do they do? How do they decide? What's the process that they go through to, to work that? Okay. Yeah, so so that, that's, again, that's the, the hourly stuff. Although I say it's, it's, it's defined for part 60, it's defined for part 75, part 60, and part 63. And keep in mm-hmm. mind, that you would think we would have the language exactly the same. It isn't. So every hourly validation has its little nuances. One, part 75 says preventative maintenance. Part 60 says corrective maintenance. One aspect says separated by 15 minutes. The other one aspect says one reading in every quadrant. Different determinations. But a lot of times that's where we run home for the hourly validations. After that, 
it becomes the wild, wild west, right? Is if I'm demonstrating compliance on a three hour average or a 12 hour average or a daily average, how much data do I need? Majority of the time, you won't see that in the underlying regulatory requirement. So if I have a three hour compliance average, do I need one valid of the three? Do I need two valid of the three or do I need all three? Right. So the process for looking at that is you kind of look around you most of the times to get this determination. You may look at guidance documents and previous determinations, other rules, uh, industry standards. What what's everybody else doing here? And the things that we look at the most is consistency, because consistency is defensible. Right. Is if I have a fleet of, of uh, if I have five you know sister facilities in my organization and I'm demonstrating compliance with the same rule, I should be doing it the exact same way because it doesn't, it's not, it's not a good feeling if you are being challenged on your interpretation and your owner, same ownership down the street is doing it, is interpreting it differently. It really puts the agency in a very good position of power for them to define to you. So as we go through, we get all of our decisions, we document all of our decisions, we make them consistent, and then we're in that position of power where there's gray areas. Well, how are you doing it? Here's exactly how we're doing it. Why are you doing it? Here's exactly why we're doing it. And I have never been necessarily challenged in a manner in which we have these answers in these gray areas from state or, or you know regulatory agencies just because it's so subjective. The only time it's challenging is when you scratch your head and say, I, I don't know. Or what do you think we should be doing? And all of a sudden it opens that up. You know, So that key thing is knowing what you're doing, identifying the gray areas, going through a process to resolve those gray areas, documenting it, and then standing behind it and, and having the support of the entire you know, uh, company behind you for that. Let's talk about an example of maybe where that gets opened up. When I think about SEMS and CMS, you sort of think, okay, rules have been around for a while, guidance documents in place. To your point, there's guidance we could look at, industries that have opted for certain ways of doing validation and, and doing all these calculations. So you wouldn't think that much new would come up necessarily, other than new regulations and rules being introduced. But there was a downtime issue recently out of Region 6 that was an interesting case study in this because I think it was a situation where it did get sort of a longstanding procedure sort of got opened up. And then when things get opened up like that, some new interpretations can surface. I was wondering if you could walk through that. I think that's an interesting example of this and and where that might come up again. Yeah, it, it's an interesting example because I think it's something that we're all struggling with right now. All right. And we're all struggling with it because agencies, consultants, organizations, everybody is losing institutional knowledge. Mm -hmm. And they're losing institutional knowledge that was around when the rules were developed. So the intention and the spirit of the rule development was clear within the agency, right? But as time passes and we get further away from those resources, those resources that were kind of our North Star, if you will, with respect to these long-time agency folks or these long-time industry experts, we start to get to a point where new interpretations can arise. And this is something that happened in the, the, the Region 6 uh, 
controversy, if you will. And basically, it was EPA issuing guidance that misinterpreted CMS downtime. And, uh, you know, really what they, they said was any downtime. First, we have, the, we have to get over the hurdle of continuous. What does continuous mean? Well, continuous by definition is without interruption, right? Well, we're in the CMS world. We don't do things without an eruption. It just doesn't work that way. So we've always relied on continuous as the measurement frequency. If a SEMS needs to monitor once every 15 minutes, then continuous is once every 15 minutes, not every second, not every nanosecond, not whatever. EPA came out and basically said all CMS downtime needs to be included when you report CMS downtime. So any and all, right? What that opened up is that opened up really the intention of the question and the direction the state agency was going was, I don't care if you can demonstrate compliance by having enough data to validate your hour. Anything in between there, you report as downtime and you give me the option to enforce. So when I talk about, you know, at the simplest and on a minute basis, if I talk about one reading every in each quarter of the hour, I can build an hour on four, right? Uh, four minutes in that hour. I like I am obligated to use all the good data in the hour, not just the four, but I am not obligated to report any minute inside that hour's downtime if I don't have it. So quite frankly, I could have 56 minutes of downtime in an hour and still be able to demonstrate compliance. Therefore, if I can demonstrate compliance, I don't have downtime. Under the API guidance, they were saying, no, you report all that as downtime and you demonstrate compliance. And um, downtime is enforceable. Downtime is something that really opens up a lot of scrutiny for a facility because if you can't monitor your SEMs and you have an excessive amount of downtime, it really paints a picture for the agency as what are these guys doing over there if they can't you know, maximize their uptime for SEMS data. So that was where the exact occurrence happened is where, you know, EPA didn't have the those same people around that they would confide in regarding the CMS data. New people, new interpretations were brought to the table. And then we had this long going discussion to rectify this interpretation, which in the end was all kind of worked out as we went through and got everybody that we could and, and connected all the dots and people were uh, got to the right place. But it was very, very eye opening. Um, and there's another example of that that happened recently is, you know, Appendix F, 40 CFR Appendix F, Procedure 1, is the quality assurance activities for SEMS. And it says what you need to do to validate your SEMS from an ongoing basis. Appendix F only applies to certain monitors as it's written in the rule. It's, you know, the rule will basically say if you have SEMS or used for compliance purposes, Appendix F applies. Well, a state just asked the EPA does Appendix F apply to every SEMS? That's a whole big different interpretation because there's a lot of SEMS, a lot of monitoring systems out there where Appendix F doesn't apply. But you can see what we take for granted, what we've always kind of said, this is the way it's always have been, and this is the way we've always understand it. You're getting new questions. You're getting a different perspective. Now, fortunately here, EPA said, no, 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 no. No, you, you have to look at the underlying regulation. You have to look at the, uh, the applicable standard to determine if Appendix F applies. So I think it's a loss of that is that institutional knowledge and and that consistency. And as these questions get asked, they get documented in the applicability determination index. So it gives us a little bit more of a guidance document to help memorialize a lot of these, you know, understood philosophies that we've been living by for, you know, 20, 30 years. 
We will wrap up there. That is part one of my conversation with Eric. We hope that you'll tune in next time for part two. You've been listening to For the Record Behind the Scenes Insider Podcast with Colin McCall. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For the Record email newsletter to get weekly news and articles on a variety of timely EHS issues. The content heard on this podcast is not intended to replace an evaluation of the specific projects and regulations that you are encountering at your company.